Uh, the other day I saw a news piece in which there was a restaurant owner who just opened up and he came this close to losing his business. And uh, he was asked, who do you blame? And he said, Gavin Newsom, straight out. Not even the virus, just Gavin Newsom for the lockdown, how far it went. We're the first state in. We're one of the last states out. Uh, and uh, the lockdowns was, was pretty restrictive. Uh, for example, other states have been wide open for quite a while. Texas, uh, Florida, for example, Mississippi. And so here's the question, and it's a really interesting issue. Was it worth it? Now, you ask different people, of course, you're going to get different answers, aren't you? But you have to look at it two different ways because uh, it's literally whether you look at the facts uh, or whether you look at values. I mean, that's truly the different ways people look at it. What are the facts? Well, the facts are facts, transmission rates, the deaths, the hospitalizations, I mean, straight out science, right? Here it is. Here are the hard numbers. Then you have values and science doesn't really look at values. I mean, they try to determine it, but it's pretty, it's pretty squishy. And values include health and longevity, prosperity, opportunity, equality, freedom. How do you measure that? You know, freedom to me is different than freedom to you. Uh, mask wearing, for example, and vaccinations. Uh, do you have the freedom to not get vaccinated? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think as a public health measure, you, you know, you get you don't get vaccinated. You're not walking into my business or my school. So you don't have the freedom uh, to make that decision. Now, how do you measure that? That's the problem. Facts you can measure. Values are a little bit different. Uh, now, how does this work? Well, the basic question, does the government prioritize public health at the expense of the economy? And that was the issue straight through this pandemic, especially restaurant owners, for example, and small mom and pop restaurants. I mean, the big, big chains didn't really get into this, but the average person did, especially when you're looking at losing your business. I don't own a restaurant, so it's easy for me to say, yeah, let's shut down because of the transmission rate, and I'm worried about the health of me, my family, to a lesser extent, my friends, if I had any. And science can look at that, but that is a lot, a lot uh, harder. Uh, we do know the number of deaths were prevented by the virus mitigation. And there is a science that that can actually be converted uh, for, quote, the benefit, societal benefit. But again, uh, that's much, much harder to look at. Matter of fact, you really can't measure uh, the effects of the lockdown. Uh, for example, let me give you an example. Uh, denser places where you have uh, intergenerational households, ethnic households, for example, particularly poorer ones, um, they suffered uh, from the lockdown, but at the same time, you had high lockdown and still high levels of virus transmission and death, which would indicate, okay, so lockdowns don't work, but uh, 
even though you had a lot of deaths, a lot of transmissions and hospitalization in those areas that were locked down and the argument says doesn't matter, everybody's still dead in that area, uh, the argument is there would have been fewer hospitalizations or more hospitalizations and death had the lockdowns not occurred. We don't know the answer. You know, I, I hear that uh, the lockdowns uh, saved X number of lives. Uh, I don't know how many lives have been actually saved. Now, science can attempt to look at that, uh, but, you know, it's it's really impossible. So it's more an issue of who you are, where you work, uh, how you live, uh, geographically in a, in a bigger picture, uh, your ethnicity. I mean, a lot has to do with it. And it really comes to uh, benefits, costs and benefits. And you have uh, costs and benefits from both sides. So the costs of the lockdown uh, in school or in-person schooling, uh, kids suffered during the lockdown, not just psychologically, which a lot did. I mean, kids get squirrely locked down at home. But ask anybody uh, as or ask any educator, ask any family member or kid, how'd you do during uh, the lockdown when you did online learning? Well, not as well. Uh, and we know that the learning is so bad that, frankly, a lot of people are arguing, let's just forget last year and repeat for everybody. And then you have mask wearing, for example, and social isolation. I mean, that's horrible psychologically. Uh, yet at the same time, we had uh, the mildest flu season, I think, that we've had on record. And the flu kills 40,000 Americans a year, generally. It was way better this, uh, this year or this past uh, winter. Uh, why? Because everybody was wearing a mask. Uh, how do you measure uh, that in terms of we shouldn't, uh, should wear a mask when you look at isolation, when you look at government forcing you to do something that you would never do and you should have the choice? So as we look at lockdowns, uh, this is why we'll never, ever agree. Uh, I was okay with it because I wasn't affected. Uh, financially, particularly now, I I had I was uh, broadcasting at home for a while, uh, but uh, the argument is for those of us who uh, do work here at KFI and we broadcast at home, yeah, it wasn't bad. And for those people that can work uh, at a computer almost any place uh, that has uh, broadband, it wasn't too bad. No driving, there was no. no no commuting, and when you did get on the roads, it was a ghost town. I remember driving, getting on the freeway. It was like nobody was there in the middle of the day. I remember driving to the off-ramp, and I'm talking about coming home, you know, mid-morning. Uh, there was no one on the road. It was like a Twilight Zone uh, uh, episode. Nobody on the road for a couple of miles. Yeah. Let me tell you how much that, what is that worth? That is the issue. Was it worth it? Was it not? We'll never get an answer. Now, uh, we've been saying, and, and, and you've been saying, uh, that working from home has changed us completely. And so uh, you have the sociologists, psychologists, uh, experts uh, in employment diving into that subject. And we are now getting some information. It's been a year. Uh, where those of us who work and, uh, well, either we're working at home or we're not working at all, you know, for example, restaurant folks, 
And uh, our personal lives have changed. Certainly our work lives have changed. Work hours have changed. Uh, we're learning to manage or we did manage our own tasks without the oversight uh, that used to happen when we went into the office. I've uh, been working in solitude in many cases. And here's what employees are saying. We had more control, uh, especially if there's nobody there giving us oversight. We want to keep that. I want to give up control. Uh I used to work the hours that I wanted as long as I got my job done, especially if you had work to do and you're not dealing with clients, et cetera. Just work sitting at a computer and producing whatever it is you produce. And so the hours were my hours. And all of a sudden we're going to go back to, no, the hours are their hours, nine to five. And we're saying, wait a minute. Uh, you know, I don't think so. It worked just fine when I was at home and I could work the hours that I wanted. More time with my kids, didn't have to commute. Well, it's a real challenge for managers. And so here is what the experts are saying uh, about, for example, bosses. Uh, consider looking at every single employee, uh, even though those have been managed for years, as a brand new employee. Because it really is a different person who's sitting in front of you. Don't assume that the employees uh, can or can't do based on what they did before the pandemic. They could have acquired new skills. Uh, they may be too married to uh, a new work schedule that they control. So you really want to look at that, assuming that uh, you're a manager, even an employee, that it's, it's a brand new person. Uh, employees have... Uh, well, they've acquired a taste for independence in many cases. And, and that's what happens here. I mean, I, I tend to talk to management here about, you know, when people are coming back, uh, when they're not uh, working at home. And uh, their management here is changing, recognizing that uh, you need to come together for meetings, et cetera. But that's it. You don't have to be here nine to five. People appreciate the autonomy they've gotten working at home. And that is absolutely critical. Look at the flexibility that working from home brings. And a lot of people aren't giving that up. Now, we're not talking necessarily about more money. We're talking about uh, their work environment. I've often said, uh, as an employer... Uh, you give someone a raise, and they're fine. Uh, and that wears off very quickly. All right, more money, thank you very much. Uh, I asked for a raise, I got a raise. Uh, and even though there's more money, uh, unless your salary is tripled, uh, the dissatisfaction still is, stays there. Why? Because the work environment hasn't changed. The validation of the employee hasn't changed. And it is hard to validate uh, when you're not there. I mean, one-on-ones, looking directly at an employee and talking about work environment, how satisfied you are, et cetera. I mean, that is uh, something you really have to do face-to-face. -face. Well, during the pandemic, that was all gone. And so uh, employers have to look and recognize 
that it's a completely different animal. Well, look what happened here uh, on the air. Uh, most of us, uh, as a matter of fact, I think, I think a great many of us uh, broadcast from home. I mean, that would have been impossible to do uh, prior to the pandemic. And now uh, here I am uh, back at the studio. Uh, I've been here for a long time, but when I was able to come back at the studio, it's a very different place. It's a very different feeling for me and for others. It's positive uh, because uh, I'm sitting in front of my old mic, but I've been in front of this mic and in this chair and in this place for a very, very long time. Matter of fact, uh, July, it'll be 28 years. Good God, is that true? Oh, my goodness. I wouldn't use the phrase, oh, my goodness. I can't believe I just said that. Oh, my goodness, did I actually say that? Wow, I'm humiliated. I apologize profusely, for sure. We have not talked to uh, Dr. Jim Keeney in quite a while. Well, I haven't because I haven't been here. But uh, also, uh, there's some real new, there's some breaking news uh, involving the pandemic. And none of it is very good. Uh, Jim is uh, the co-director, Dr. Jim, of the ER Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo. Uh, Morning, Jim. Morning, Bill. How are you doing? Good. We haven't talked for a while, and I know you texted me a few times um, uh, during my convalescence. Thank you for that. And, of course. Yeah. No, that was very sweet. You know, how you doing, Bill? And I said, I'm doing crap. And he goes, nice to hear it. Uh, and uh, we waited till next time where I said, I'm still doing crap. <laughs> it's been a rough one, to say the least. Uh, now, let me uh, ask you a couple of questions. Uh, first of all, the big one. And that is in light of uh, virtually every state opening up, California being one of the last ones. Uh, So restrictions are off, masking is off, social distancing is off the table. And we have the new Delta variant now spreading through the U.S. And it's going to be, it looks like, the dominant strain of the virus. What the hell's going on? Right. So, I mean, we have to address these variants because they keep popping up and uh, we keep getting asked this question. The bottom line is, is this a variant of concern or, you know, is it something that's that now is worse and we have no defense against it? And right now, this is just one that the, the CDC is observing as becoming predominant because it's more contagious than the other stuff. But more conta- contagious doesn't mean it necessarily makes you more sick. It does look like maybe this one makes you a little bit more sick. And then the, the, the other question you need to know is, does the vaccine protect us against this new variant? And it does seem to protect us as well uh, as the, you know, the other variants. So if you're vaccinated, you're still good. If you're not vaccinated, you're still at risk. There's really no change. You were at risk, uh, you know, before this. So it, it, the Delta variant right now doesn't really change much. What it does is it points out that we can, are going to continue to have this kind of flowing through. Uh, We're going to have changes in variants so that even if you think you might have gotten it before and you may have some immunity, you may be at risk for getting one of these new variants again. And so it just highlights the importance of a vaccine program to control the spread so that we don't keep circulating these variants and basically having a variant, uh, you know, uh, machine that generates new variants constantly. Yeah. Now, it's uh, we've reached the point now in terms of pushing the vaccinations to uh, those who refuse to be vaccinated uh, simply because they refuse to be vaccinated. 
it, there's plenty of vaccine out there. And uh, the government is now dealing simply with, for whatever reason, hesitancy because of mistrust of government, because uh, uh, there hasn't been enough testing, which I'll talk about later on. Uh, and so uh, we're looking at those percentage of people. Uh, are they, is this variant going to spread among the non-vaccinated to the point where they have to start sweating bullets or because the number of new cases are so low, it sort of doesn't matter? Well, so for us in California, it's kind of a different, different than a lot of states. I mean, when we're at 60% or something, something like that of, uh, you know, vac- fully vaccinated population compared to someplace, you know, like the southeast where it's 30 percent. It's it's a different story. So I think we're we're pretty well protected when you add in the people who probably already got the virus that maybe didn't get the vaccine. Um, we're probably above 70 percent vaccinated in the state. And so we're going to have uh, be approaching pretty decent herd immunity. Um, so we'll see a different story, different states. The problem is then they'll point to certain states like uh, uh, Tennessee. I believe it's got like a 30 percent in, uh, vaccination rate, but they aren't seeing an outbreak right now. Well, that you know, that's like having a pile of tinder in your backyard that hasn't caught on fire yet and saying, we'll see you guys are, are not. It, this isn't true that when you're not vaccinated, you're going to have outbreaks. Um, but it is overall, if you look at most of the states, the ones with high vaccination rates are not getting new outbreaks and the ones that have low vaccination rates are. Um, so still, again, it's it's just a matter of uh, how well we're going to get people vaccinated uh, if you can get the vaccine. And then, uh, you know, for the people who can't for whatever reason or don't have a response, they're going to have to continue wearing a mask if they want to be protected or they can take the risk. Uh, is where you work in the ER, is there forced vaccination? In other words, do you have to be vaccinated to work there? You know, that's a good question. Um, I'm not 100% sure that it's required like that. We're not, uh, as far as I'm aware, we are not firing anybody because they don't get the vaccine. Um, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm sure that we're, that it's not a requirement. We're asking people to get vaccinated. If you're not vaccinated, we'll probably do the same thing we do with the flu vaccine, which is, um, you know, if you're not vaccinated, then during the flu season, when there's flu cases present, you're required to wear a mask from the time you enter the hospital to the time you leave. So that, that masking thing has been a thing for us, you know, for, for years related to flu. All right. So let me ask this. The people that refuse to be vaccinated are uh, in the same group of people, I would assume, that refuse to wear a mask uh, because no one can tell me uh, what to do when I have my freedom. So let me throw a hypothetical at you. Let's say uh, no mask, no vaccination. I'm an American. No one can tell me what to do. Uh, what happens? Do you have any idea? I mean, you, you're you're the yeah, uh, no, then, then co- they would co- be yeah they'd be fired at that point. Okay, I mean, they would be yeah because I mean we the, at some point you know there's a there's some intersection between uh, HR and legal and all of that stuff where you know we do where employers are required to take some responsibility for their employees' safety uh, even if the employees don't want to participate in that safety. So. Um, you know, and on the, on the other hand, is it a big brother thing? I don't know where, where it crosses that line. But in this case, if people, we know that they're putting themselves at risk for catching a disease while working in the hospital and then spreading it to our patients, then we're not going to allow that. And so I would imagine that that person would not be allowed to work. Do you know of any medical people that uh, refuse a vaccine? Yeah, I do. 
And uh, for legitimate we reasons? We have, we have every color and shape and everything, just like the rest of the population, right? So we still have people that are, have vaccine hesitancy and concerns and all of that. Not necessarily uh, because they've evaluated some science and say to, say to us that uh, I don't believe that study or this study. It's, it's uh, more of a, this, the same reasons you hear for vaccine hesitancy across the board, which is I don't trust it yet. I don't think there's enough research yet. I don't know that I even need it, you know, that type of thing. Hey, so, yeah, well, let me let me uh, go let me go there for a minute and uh talk about one of the reasons uh that people give. I'm not talking about the fruit loops uh that talk about it's part of uh the government uh you know tr- take over I mean that's crazy stuff. But those people that say, "You know what? It's it's such a short cycle from the time it's uh come on with the emergency use authorization uh to the finding out the testing, long-term, medium-term testing. Uh, you know, what's your take on that? Is there a legitimate concern here that we just don't know enough about it in terms of long-term or sh- e- even short-term? Well, I mean, I kind of thought that that might have been the case before it was launched. But then once I saw the studies, and they were pretty robust studies, then I realized that, yeah, was I 100% sure? secure when I took the vaccine in December of last year. I wasn't, but you know, this was part of the deal. And if I wanted to work in this environment, it's something I needed. And and I had enough proof in my mind that I felt like, okay, uh, I'm not doing something stupid here. Um, Since then, I mean, there's very few things in the world that we've given to this many people to be able to have that opportunity to see this many uh, adverse reactions and the the ability, the the surveillance ability where everybody's eyes are out and looking for the problem. So to me, at this point, I, I may be more secure about these vaccines uh, than any other drugs, certainly any other drug or, or vaccine this early in the process. And, and, you know, a lot of drugs that have been out there for a while haven't been given to this many people ever. So, well, you know, it's I think we have the numbers now. We really do have the numbers to show that this is pretty safe. Yeah, except and vaccines we, don't typically cause long term problems. Yeah, I mean, that's never really the issue. Seen, that's the issue yeah. uh, that we don't know two years, three years, five years down the pike that you're not going to see people come up uh, with uh, various uh, side effects. I mean, we're just hearing now uh, about various respiratory problems, heart problems, et cetera. And uh, does that change the medical science view of this? I mean, again, it's going to be a continued surveillance, but the best data we have right now is that there is, uh, you know, a virus running its course that's that's significantly impacting, you know, our lifestyle, our economics, uh, you know, our joy of life and everything else. And we have something that can fix that problem, that can make it so that we can get out. You know what I mean? So, and the data on what we have so far is that it's completely safe. So, uh, you know, I, to me, it's a no-brainer, but I get it. I mean, people are making the decision, uh, you know, it, it's impacted by emotions uh, to some extent, right. impacted by, you know, other other things they've seen, other life experiences. And, you know, that's fine. We're, that's America is an individualistic society. We all get to do that. Um, and at this point, I feel less bad about the people who are being exposed to those people. I mean, at this point, if you're at risk, you, you know, it's your own business. If you yeah. wear a mask and you get sick or not, to the to the mo- to some extent. But those immunocompromised people that have no choice, that right. they have a lower response rate, 
you know, they're just they're going to have to be more careful. And that's unfortunate. Um, and we could help them, those of us who can get the vaccine. But if we choose not to, then, you know, it's those immunocompromised people that will have to take responsibility for their own protection. All right. And then one last final question. Uh, do you see uh, the COVID vaccine being given annually like the flu shot uh, and the pneumonia shot, which I take every year? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to predict. I mean, as things are stand right now, there's there's enough frequency of variants that the answer, I think, is yes. But so far, none of the variants have fallen outside the scope of what this vaccine will protect you against. So it's possible that it may be longer than every year. It's possible that, that if we get enough people vaccinated and we kind of kill this thing off like SARS-1, you know, stopped, uh, then it's possible that we don't need it. But it is looking at all the evidence is pointing to the fact that this is going to be around to stay, that there will be variants, um, hopefully not every year, but we, we may need booster shots or we may need different vaccines in the future. Got it. Jim, thank you, sir. Uh, always, Anytime. always good stuff. All right. Uh, rather important stuff has happened. Uh, the House uh, passed a bill to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. June 19th, and it commemorates uh, the, I guess it commemorates the freeing, and that's in quotes, of uh, the last slaves uh, in the United States after the Civil War. It really recognizes that's when they were told that they were free, and it recognizes that day uh, as, okay, now everybody in the country knows, in Galveston, Texas, about a month after the Civil War ended, and uh, General um, Gordon Granger arrived on the island of Galveston to take command of uh, federal troops and to uh, let everyone know that slavery is done and finished. All right, so uh, that's the day. It's uh, it's an important day, to say the the uh, to say the least, in terms of the history of the United States, and it is being recognized now as a national holiday. Uh, but, you know, the reality is uh, the reason it was a unanimous consent in the Senate where all the eyes say aye, okay, everybody screams the nays, no one uh, sa- stands up or no one objects. By the way, it only takes one senator to object to a unanimous consent. So Senate already passed it. The House passed it, and there were 13 or 14 uh, Congress people who uh, voted no uh, all the way from, gee, it costs another $600, uh, $600 million a year because it's a federal holiday uh, to crazy stuff that it really isn't about recognizing that slavery was over. It's really part of this massive conspiracy among Democrats to redo American thinking, and they really don't care about black people. It really is just changing how... Uh, we are, we look at America and we're not going to let you do that. Part of that crowd. Uh, so I, I want to get into uh, why this is uh, not such a huge deal. Uh, and it is symbolically, but that's the point. It is more symbolism than anything else. It is certainly a recognition, uh, a day that commemorates the freeing, the final freedom of the slaves, which I think is critically important for us to know about. Uh, But in big picture, I mean, does it do anything other than recognize the day? 
Uh, does it change voting rights, for example? Because among those senators who voted yes in the unanimous consent vote, there are senators that are just fine with the states passing laws that call voter suppression, but restrict the ability of certain members of society to vote, make it more difficult to vote. And here is where the Supreme Court is going to get very interesting because, of course, lawsuit after lawsuit has been filed. And even if the intent is not to suppress the vote, because I guarantee you every one of those that are voting against the voting rights bill, there were two of them and they voted against one of them. uh, They'll tell you it has nothing to do with racism. It has to do with the security of the vote. Because that's the crowd that believes that Joe Biden shouldn't be president and Donald Trump actually won the presidency because of a lack of security and the fake votes that came in, even though there's zero evidence that fraud occurred on any scale whatsoever. And so let's say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not a bunch of racists. Uh, and uh, they're looking at this for security, which, of course, is a, a bunch of crap. Um, here's the problem legally they're going to have even unintended racism is illegal. And if it turns out during the next election, for example, that it becomes much more difficult to vote, which it does IDs and shortened voting periods and mail-in ballots, uh, that have to be requested, uh, all of the issues that make it harder to vote by everybody, by the way doesn't say blacks uh, have to show ID versus white people where uh, constitutionally before it used to happen that way. Uh, But if it turns out that it is de facto uh, fewer black votes, then uh, those folks have uh, these people that are passing those laws have a big issue. Even though they're arguing uh, that really is for security, because I think their argument is a crock. I think it's all political. It has to do with making it more difficult to vote, and it affects minorities more than it does whites. And so that's real. Those are real issues. Juneteenth, as important as it is, is an easy pass. Because you can say, hey, I'm in favor of the recognition of the end of slavery uh, and I can be as conservative as I want, and I'm going to be voting uh, for all of these measures that make it more difficult to vote, particularly minorities. Uh, but look at me. I voted for making June, uh, June, uh, June 19th a federal holiday. That's why it's an easy one. That's why big picture, it, to me, it's more symbolism. But uh, it, it reminds me of, and I want to do a little history segment here because this is kind of fun, and uh, maybe you'll change your, your mind a little bit about Abraham Lincoln. The other day, uh, we knew this bill was going to come forward, and there was a local news reporter who went up to a bunch of people uh, and said, uh, when I say the word Abraham Lincoln, what do you think of? And uh, virtually all of the African Americans uh, say uh, he freed the slaves. Uh, I got news for your folks. Uh, He only freed the slaves that were in states that were in rebellion. That was it. This was not Abraham Lincoln making a moral decision about slavery. Uh, It was a wartime measure. That was it. 
it was all about uh, reducing the ability of the southern states to rebel. Nothing more, nothing less. And I want to say something to you, although uh, towards the end of the war and after the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, he did believe morally that slavery was terrible. That I guarantee you, that was part of his moral being. Uh, I also want to tell you that Abraham Lincoln was a racist. Never once did he ever mention equality between whites and blacks, ever. And as a matter of fact, he believed the races were unequal. Truly, that uh, black folks were uh, subservient to and not as good as uh, whites, that whites were superior, both in thinking and in the ability to be promoted or better themselves. He just didn't care. I mean, he was a genuine racist. What he did is believe that slavery was immoral, that no human being should own another human being. That was part of his moral core. But it ended there. And it was only towards the very last that he believed that African Americans should be able to vote. He was okay with that. But as far as education, as far as jobs, as far as treating Uh, people equally, that was off the table. Now, you also have to take in historical terms, in context. Had he said that the races were equal, this man would, his political career would have stopped right there. And the man ran for president and Congress and Senate, and he was a realist. But as the politics are on Juneteenth, And you have to look at uh, a lot of the senators and Congress looking at this more as a political sop. And it's an easy one, as I explained, because it doesn't change anything other than the recognition of the end of slavery. And it's easy to recognize the end of slavery. Now, let's get serious about people's right to vote. We're fine with suppression of the vote. But I I voted for Juneteenth. so. You know, keep in mind that it's all it all has political ramifications. And uh, the Emancipation Proclamation really was only a wartime measure. That's it. It started and stopped at that point. Uh, because, first of all, it's only the states in rebellion, right? It exempted Tennessee, uh, a slave state. Portions of Virginia, Louisiana that were occupied by the Union left slavery untouched. In the border states of Maryland, Delaware, Kentucky, and Missouri, because he didn't want to offend those states and have them move over to uh, the South. So, uh, you know, uh, let's look at uh, reality here. I mean, the man became a deity. Matter of fact, the man became a deity uh, exactly one day after he was assassinated. Uh, That's when uh, he was uh, no longer a human being. So, civil war. Love this history stuff. I saw a commercial yesterday uh, that I've I've never seen before. I I would think I was watching. Uh, I don't remember what channel I was watching. Uh, and Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, uh, who does his own commercials, uh, is looking at us. Of course, looking at the camera, 
and saying, even though a lot of retailers have dropped my pillow, you can buy direct. And then he goes through the whole thing, recognizing that most retailers, I mean, the major retailers, Target, uh, what other stores? I don't know if Costco had it, probably not. Uh, Walmart carried my pillow. They all said, we're done. Kick them out. And why? Well, because first of all, Mike Lindell is crazy. Uh, not only is, is he and was an advocate Trump supporter, he bought into all the conspiracy theories and was very public about it. And uh, these corporations wanted nothing to do with this guy and his company. So he goes, let's go direct and uh, buy my pillow. And I know people that will never touch his pillow uh, because of the political aspects of this. And therein lies a story. And the story is about corporations and getting involved in politics. Uh, heretofore, it used to be, until very recently, I'm talking about within the last few years, corporations would never get involved in any kind of political statement. It just wouldn't happen because of uh, legitimate business interests. They're not going to get involved in Democratic, Republican politics, issues like gay rights. They're simply not going to do it because corporations thought it, it's, it's a no-win for us. I mean, if we get involved, let's say we come out in favor of gay rights in some way or another. Either we give money to gay rights organizations or we run commercials that feature uh, gay people, which, by the way, everybody does now. Uh, and, uh, you know, every couple out on commercials uh, are mixed-race couples. Have you noticed that? That's all you see. There's no such thing as an all-black or all-Latino or all-white couple on TV anymore. It doesn't exist. It's always mixed-race. Why? That's a political statement from the corporations. They're making political statements, which never happened before. I mean, the world has changed. When we talk about how we think differently and how quickly we're changing perceptions and views of society and recognizing systemic racism and recognizing the history of this country, uh, it's a whole different animal. And particularly, and this is an example, because the last bastion of non-involvement, of staying neutral, is the major American corporation. I mean, you don't see Procter and Gamble ever coming out with some kind of a political statement. So what's a political statement? I mean, they don't come out, of course, and just uh, in the end of their commercial, it's just a big banner saying, we believe in gay rights. Uh, no, 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 that's way too blatant. Uh, it's a little bit more subtle than that. Uh, but uh, that time has come. And for those of us that have been listening to commercials or looking at print ads or listening to radio, uh, you shake your head and you go, really? Uh, that's what's here? It is now uh, a corporation guessing which side to go on. Oh, it's fairly easy to guess. Uh, or staying silent. And that is a political statement. Look at the commercials. You don't see anything but mixed-race couples anymore. Uh, and you see gay couples. There's one commercial for uh, one of the pharmaceuticals where you have uh, two guys, 
one black, one white, of course, and they're kissing each other, showing what love is about. I mean, can you imagine that 10 years ago? Uh, and so all of this is about making political statements because obviously the manufacturing company, the pharmaceutical company is saying, we believe in gay rights. Uh, we believe in diversity because uh, look at the couples that we put on TV, mixed race. And therein lies a problem. That's a dilemma. And here's why. It used to be that uh, companies were totally neutral. They would never, ever make a political statement of any kind. And now... Uh, they don't even have to make political statements, although they do. The commercials, uh, giving to uh, major organizations, uh, Black Lives Matter, gay organizations, et cetera, Hispanic organizations, and making it public. Uh, so they're now going public. Why? Because they have to. Because if they don't, then the backlash gets real. They call for boycotts reputation of being a racist organization, even remaining silent makes its own statement in light of what's going on. How can you dare not recognize, for example, that we have systemic racism in uh, society and what can you do about it as a corporation? Well, we'll, we'll do our commercials. Uh, we'll certainly engage in diversity in uh, our corporation, in terms of hiring, in terms of promotions, et cetera. It's whatever the corporations can do to keep up with uh, our changing views of America. I mean, it is now, instead of the corporations controlling their message, now it is uh, what's going on outside that's controlling the message. That's, that is new. And we're talking about organizations like, oh, small ones, uh, Citicorp. Right, a forty billion dollar company. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, there's an example of uh, Citicorp that I want to uh, bring up. <clears throat> and um, Citicorp uh, has uh, a bunch of spokespeople, and uh, they had a pro golf for Justin Thomas on its endorsement roster, and they decided to keep him, which is totally unique because anybody else would have tossed him out. And why did they decide to keep him? And by the way, uh, every other supporter, every other endorsement that he had was gone. Like, for example, Ralph, uh, Ralph Lauren Corporation cut its ties uh, with Justin Thomas, this golfer, because he used an anti-gay slur under his breath that the uh, microphone picked up during a tournament play, televised. And so here's what Citicorp has to do. Do we drop him and make a statement saying we will not countenance an anti-gay statement by any of our uh, endorsers. Or what they did is they kept him as a positive view. They kept him, he used a gay slur or a slur against gays, and they're making a positive. Look what we are doing by keeping him after that. Why? Because they're now using it as a platform for dealing with gay discrimination. So Citicorp is saying, here's why we're keeping him. Now, it's kind of an interesting reverse here. Uh, in an interview with the Golf Channel, uh, the day of the tournament, I mean, uh, and, and it went out. Uh, Thomas apologizes for using the slur. I'm extremely embarrassed. It's not who I am. It's not the kind of person that I am. 
what they're doing is using that gay slur to promote the discussion of gay sentiment or anti-gay sentiment and saying, aren't we good guys? And by the way, maybe legitimate with the board. I have no idea what the motivation is. I'm a cynic. I think of it as all marketing. I think of it as uh, these major corporations looking around, the marketing people looking around going, whoa, what the hell do we do with this now? Do we stay silent? Which incidentally, here's an interesting one. Here's what the uh, marketers are saying. If something happens or uh, and how you react to it is far better than just staying silent. Why? Because reacting to it and recognizing it and doing something positive about it is far better than not doing anything. And that is unusual. That's sort of contradictory right there. You know, it, uh, you know, it, it seems like it doesn't make sense. Yet according to the marketing experts, that's exactly what they should do. So um, you're now going to see, well, I don't know what more they can do as far as television commercials are concerned. Uh, because uh, they're about as diverse as you can get. As a matter of fact, they're so diverse, uh, I didn't know that there's such a thing as a white couple out there. It's sim- it's uh, an African-American and a white person. Or it's a Latino and an African-American. Uh, or it's someone Eastern European and an Inuit. But you talk about political sentiment, huh? How things have changed. Used to be that the marketers, the companies control their message. Now, uh, outside sentiment. Well, if you want political correctness, and uh, I'm not saying that in a pejorative sense, because I think it's much bigger than that. Depends on which side of the coin you are in terms of being a cynic. Uh, I, I look at this; they're simply reacting to the market. They're just making the best choice, whether they, and and not. Uh, the board of directors, the CEO saying, we have to do something about what's going on with society. I don't buy that for a second. It's look what's going on out there and we have to do minimal damage or we have to engage in showing how diverse we are to sell product, to not offend whole groups of people. This is KFI AM 640 live everywhere on the iHeartRadio app.